It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who weren't here earlier with us, uh, my name is Nathan and my wife Kristen over here. Uh, we're here this morning uh, from First Baptist, which is where we're helping out First Baptist in Watertown, which I know uh, most of you will be familiar with, uh, certainly with Jason Redbird. And so greetings from First Baptist this morning. It's good to be with you all. We've been looking forward to coming over here. Mike and I have been uh, meeting for coffee in Watertown, oh, I don't know, a few months now, and we've been talking on and off about this, but we're very much excited to be with you this morning. We are going to be in the book of Acts. I know you've been going through the book of Acts yourselves uh, as a church, and so we're going to actually skip a few chapters ahead. And so if you want to turn to the chapter of 17 in the book of Acts, we're going to skip ahead to that chapter. And um, what I want to do today is I want to not only preach the text, which certainly uh, we need to do and, and see what's going on in this text, but what I'm going to try to do is um, set it up maybe a bit differently with a contrast, and then we'll look at the text, and then we'll kind of finish it up with some applications for, for you and I with right here where we're at, uh, as well as where my wife and I are going, and that is Australia, to do church work down there. But I think what you'll, you'll find is that this passage, perhaps uh, more than most or more than many in the book of Acts, has many, many applications for you and I today. Especially in the fact that we live in a, the Western world, the Western part of the world, with a great history of, of Western literature and art and philosophy and thinking behind us. We're going to find a similarity between us and Paul in this text as well in that sense. But with all that background behind us, how do people understand the gospel when you and I try to share it with them today? And if you can think uh, over these last few years of people with whom you've had conversations about God, about Christ, about the gospel and what it means, and how that has been received, I think we would all agree that, it's, that the people to whom we speak, nine times out of ten, in our workplace environment, at the stores at which we shop, our friends and family, many people today, unlike maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago, had no understanding of basic biblical principles. It used to be that most people grew up uh, going to church, at least to Sunday school as a kid or something like that. For instance, my father, he was uh, sent off to school. His parents were not Christians at this point, but he was always sent off to Sunday school because that's what good little boys and little girls do. The parents don't need to do it. At least that's what my grandparents thought. But they didn't need to do it, but, but my dad apparently needed it. And so they sent him off to Sunday school for, for 10, 10 or so years of his life. He ended up getting saved when he was a teenager. And praise the Lord, both my, my grandparents became Christians later on as well. But that mentality of even the fact of, I don't really want to go there, but my kids should probably grow up going to Sunday school or church or something, that's pretty much gone in most places. And, and subsequently, or at least in part due to that, there's very little what we might call Christian or biblical literacy in our modern world. So we're going to talk about a few of those things. I think you'll see how it ties in. But let me, first of all, set up the contrast. Sometimes the best way to learn is by a contrast. How do we know what uh, Christianity teaches versus what Islam teaches? Well, let's, let's compare and contrast them. That, that's a great way to learn. And in this passage, what I want to do is I want to contrast it, first of all, with Acts chapter 2. And I, am, uh, I have a bit of an advantage here because we've already gone through Acts chapter 2 uh, in the last few months. If you just recall in your memory, Acts chapter 2, what we have is Pentecost happening. Peter is preaching. He ends up preaching in front of uh, thousands of Jewish people, primarily Jewish people, although there are a few Greeks there. And as he preaches, if you'll remember, 
he's preaching during a, a Jewish festival. So the majority of the congregation is Jewish or people who are thinking about becoming Jewish. The text says God-fearers uh, and proselytes, those who are kind of in transition mode from becoming Greek to becoming uh, a Jewish worshiper of the one true God. That's his audience. And as he preaches, if we were able to look back, look back at that passage in detail, what you would find is that Paul, or pardon me, Peter in this instance, he starts off uh, very interestingly. That is, his sermon is not primarily uh, anything to do with the, the Old Testament except for the prophecies about Jesus. That's kind of where he starts. Now, why does he start there? Why doesn't he, I don't know, start back at creation, as we're, we're going to find that Paul does here. Why doesn't he start somewhere back with Abraham and Isaac? He mentions a couple things, but primarily his audience already understood all that. Most of them would have had much of the Old Testament memorized. So he didn't have to rehash all that. All he had to do was say, Old Testament scriptures tell about a Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. You killed him. And now you have to reckon with what you did. And now he's calling, because he rose from the dead, he's calling all men everywhere to repent. So he, he was able to kind of get to the punchline right away because his audience already understood all the background information. They already understood and had a great foundation and he just had to kind of finish the last, uh, the last level, so to speak, of the building on their, their strong foundation. Well, we're going to find out a very different scenario here. And so let's look at the passage here. What we're going to find is, uh, if you were to look at verse 10, you'd find that Paul and Silas are in Berea. And it talks a little bit about that. But then skipping down to verse 16, what we find is it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them, the them as uh, two of his friends to come join him at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw that the city was full of idols. So what we're going to find here is we're going to find Paul. He's kind of waiting around for a couple people to join him so they can continue on their missionary journey. And of course, I believe last week, if I understand it correctly, you just talked about them being commissioned uh, for some mission work, Paul specifically and Barnabas. And here we find him on this missionary journey. He's now waiting at Athens for a couple people to join him so they can continue on. Now, the thing that's so interesting about this is if you know much about Paul, and you probably already talked a little bit about this, Paul was a very intelligent individual. He wrote many of the books we have in the New Testament, of course. But he was not just intelligent uh, in one area. You know, sometimes we have people today um, who are experts in one particular field, and they have absolutely no common sense. How many of you know someone like that? Yeah. Um, or are they an expert in, in one field, but when you talk about anything else, they just they have no concept of it. Uh, it's only one thing they're, they're really good at, they're really knowledgeable about. Well, Paul here has an extremely unique background. He was trained under one of the best rabbis of his time, actually one of the best rabbis for several hundred years. Uh, he was trained under him, but yet at the same time, he was also a Roman citizen, and he had been trained in, in kind of Greek and Roman backgrounds, including philosophy, art, literature, etc. And we find that throughout his writings, we find some of that background coming through. So he has kind of the best of both, of not both worlds, but three different worlds, that is Greek, Roman, and Jewish. And so, if you will, he had the, the best pedigree you could possibly have, as, at least in the sense of him speaking to many Jewish people about this, this Messiah that has come. And he's a very intelligent individual with the, all the schooling he has had. And so now he's at Athens, the first time that we know of that he visited Athens. Why is that important? 
Well, it's extremely important because he was trained in, in Greek philosophy, Greek thought, Greek literature. And this was the center point from which all that Greek philosophy and literature and, and kind of the Hellenistic background came to the Roman world at that time. Basically, it's the epicenter of culture in that day. It's extremely important to not just for, for Greece and Greek thinking, but basically what the Romans did when they came in and after Alexander the Great and the Romans kind of took over, they basically took all of Greek culture, Greek gods, Greek literature, all that stuff, and uh, they called the gods by slightly different names, but essentially they were the same. They took a lot of literature, at least the styles of literature, and they just used it for themselves and changed the language to Latin uh, and things like that. But they basically kept a lot of that Greek culture. So this is a very strategic point, Athens. We're going to find out how that is. And so we see him, but he's troubled at Athens. He's not just sitting around waiting for his friends. He's going to do something, and while he's there, he's troubled about these idols. Verse 17, typical Paul here. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So what we find out is he goes to the synagogue first. That's what we find out all through the book of Acts. Typically goes to the synagogue. Usually what happens is he's there for a few weeks, and they hate him, and they kick him out, and then he goes to the Gentiles. In this case, we don't, we don't get much. We just hear he goes to the synagogue. We don't know how long, probably a very short time. And then whether by choice or, or, or necessity, he leaves the synagogue, and it says he goes into the marketplace, and he talks with anyone who happens to be there. Now, that's, that's actually really important. It, it seems like just kind of a nonchalant, hey, I'll talk to anybody who's around. But there's actually an important point to be made here. In the history of Athens, and, and for those of you who um, may have had uh, some literature classes, uh, studying some Greek history, or, or if you've had some philosophy classes, you'll know kind of the big three guys that were from Athens who were most important in the ancient world, and even their, their effect is still felt today, their works are still read today, would be Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. And what's so intriguing about this passage is that Socrates was known for doing this exact same thing. He would go into the marketplace, and he would talk with anyone who would listen to him. Now, in his case, he would talk to people about some question of philosophy or ethics that he had, or, or some new idea he was trying to espouse. But in Paul's case, Paul's doing the same thing that Socrates did, and presumably many other uh, philosophers and teachers in the Greek world did, and that is talking with anyone, because the best way to get out your information, if you have a new idea or something like that, today you write a book, maybe or you, you make a documentary, or something like that. But back in that world, it was to go into the marketplace of a thriving city, especially one that made the culture of the day like Athens, and it was to talk to everybody, because if you can disseminate your idea in the marketplace in that city, those people, because it's a thoroughfare for the whole Roman Empire, that idea will spread throughout the whole Roman world. So this is what Paul is doing. He's being very strategic about what he's doing. He's going into the marketplace, and we're going to find, verse 18, it says, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers, these two rival groups of philosophers, they also converse with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So they're, they're not understanding him clearly. And others said, he seems to be preacher, a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So there's these two groups, and, and they're interesting groups, but even without knowing the details of these groups, it's clear that they're not understanding what Paul is talking about. Notice that it says divinities. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, plural. 
Well, was Paul preaching to them about many different gods? Well, we can probably assume no, since he never does anywhere else in the Bible, and he actually preaches against doing so. He only believes in one true God, Yahweh God of the Old Testament, whose son, Jesus, had come down. So why would they be thinking that he's preaching about multiple gods? It's a bit of a conundrum, but we can at least figure out that they're clearly not understanding what he's talking about. And we'll, we'll find out why that is. And so they took hold of him in verse 19, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Not all the Athenians, and this is a, a side of commentary from the, the writer Luke. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So what we're finding here is that he's talking in the, in the marketplace with anyone who will listen, and eventually a couple of these uh, philosopher types find him, or he finds them, and they hear what he's saying. They're not understanding it, so they invite him to the Areopagus. Now this was the, the place where, where all the bigwigs, all the thinkers in that city would come to hear about a new idea so that they could ask questions about it, so that they could learn if it, if it was a good idea, so that they could learn from it. And we find that they were completely given over to novelty. This people group in Athens, especially these leaders, the philosophers, uh, were given over to novelty. Now when I say philosophers, I think it is helpful just to point out a, a point of clarification here. When we think of philosophers in our modern day, we think of some guy who writes a book that sells about five copies, and he teaches that, you know, you know what I'm saying? That's not, that's not the, the type of philosopher we're talking about here. Philosophers in that day and age would have been the setters forth of both religious ideas, uh, as well as kind of the intellectual minds that you would go to, to to ask difficult questions. They would be the teachers and professor types, although they did it a little bit differently. They often would be the writers, yes, but they were... All of those things wrapped into one, as well as the kind of cultural trendsetters, so to speak. And so, especially in Athens, if a new idea came along, just like when Plato or Aristotle or Socrates or uh, one of these gentlemen had a new idea, this is where they would go. And so this is kind of the testing ground for that new idea. In our modern age, as I mentioned, we might write a book for a new idea, or if you're in, in the area of medicine, uh, you might write an article or do some research or something like that. All of those types of concepts were done here at the Areopagus, and that's where they invite Paul to explain what he's talking about. So verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, here's, here's his message, here's what he's going to say. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, uh, I don't know what all the translations we have here. I know you generally use uh, ESV or Holman uh, Standard. Some, some translations say superstitious. You're very superstitious. Um, the idea is not so much superstitious as, uh, you know, you're afraid of a black cat and, and ladders and mirrors breaking and things like that. It's not that idea. He's actually uh, really kind of complimenting them, saying you're overly religious. You're overly devout. You, you really want to get this religion thing right. Now, in their instance, what they would do is they would worship every single god they could come up with, usually gods being a, a slightly higher form of human. Basically, you think of Zeus or Apollo or something like that. They're, they're very human in their actions, but they do have some extra powers. And so they would worship all these different gods and goddesses and give them all the personification uh, of human traits, and in this case, 
we're going to find that they were even worshiping one they didn't know the name of and they didn't know what the god was for but they just didn't want to leave anybody out and so they had to worship this other one as well and that's what he's going to point out he's saying you're very religious and that's that's okay because you need to search after uh, true religion uh, verse 23 for as i passed along and observed the objects of your worship they found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown god what therefore you worship is unknown this i proclaim to you and so what he's going to do is he's going to say look at this god you're worshiping this this idol this god just to make sure all your bases are covered and he's, he's actually in a sense commending them for doing so that is you are very devout you are really really trying and that's that's laudable but he's actually going to point out that they're completely wrong as well but he does it tactfully and he uses their own idea of this unknown god as a springboard to tell them about the only god that matters the only true god what therefore you worship is unknown this i proclaim to you verse 24 he says notice where he starts here he's going to tell them about the one true god where does he start the god who made the world and everything in it he starts right at the very beginning right at creation back in genesis now he doesn't use uh, genesis language he doesn't necessarily quote from the hebrew uh, but it's certainly that's the idea the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with man, uh, made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives he, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, etc., etc. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read on, but let me just explain kind of what he's doing here. He's starting at the very beginning. He's saying, okay, you have no concept of this one true God I'm about to tell you about. So let's use your own idols to this unknown God. I'll tell you about him. And in, in, in place of that, he's going to put the one true God, Jehovah God. And so he starts off, the God who made the world and everything therein, he doesn't need to dwell in temples. And it's interesting, uh, the way this is phrased here, uh, at the end of verse 24, it says, he's Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. That phrase there, um, it's, it's kind of a colloquialism, so to speak, in, in the Greek world. What that phrase means is it, it doesn't just mean a, a building made by human hands, uh, as if just a description of who made it. It's, it's actually a reference to the type of idolatry that was prevalent in this era. That is, the idea there is a temple built with human hands is built so that you can worship a physical object. But God is not a physical object. So it, it's another reference to idolatry. Let me give you a parallel with that. Earlier in Acts, do you remember Stephen? When he was um, not making the chief priests and, and scribes very happy. And, and he decided to, he, he preached to them. And of course they ended up killing him for it. But towards the end of his sermon, before he was able to finish, one of the last things he said was something about the temple that was standing behind him. He used the same phrase. God doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. That is, his point to them was, you have traded the one true God, the God of the whole universe, and you have put him into a physical substance, the temple, and you now worship the temple, not the true God. Well, clearly that didn't sit very well with the Jews, and that's why they picked up stones to kill him. At least that was a major reason. And so... The same thing is happening here. He's saying, you're being idolatrous. Do you think that you could really make the God of the universe somehow dwell, make his presence dwell in this petty little building? 
That's, that's kind of what he's getting to here in verse 24. Verse 25, and he goes on. He doesn't need human hands to serve him. He doesn't need anything because he's the one who provides everything, gives all, all men and, and everything on the earth, life and breath and everything they need. That's his point. And so he's going to go on. He's going to quote from some of their own poets and things like that. And his point is, clearly, God is more than just some idol made out of wood or stone that you can fit into a temple. Clearly, he is more than just some being that you need to bring a few fruits and vegetables and throw in front of him. Clearly, he is more than, than just a being who's ultimately satisfied with a bunch of petty humans bringing a cow and killing it in front of him. If that's all that God is, why serve him? That's pathetic. And so he's, he's contrasting their concept of idols with the one true God. He's saying, no, God is over all. He doesn't need you to worship him. He doesn't need you to sacrifice to him. He has certain demands he's going to make of you, but he doesn't need you. He's not in your debt. You are in his. That's, that's kind of where he's going. So he's, he's really changing their whole mindset. And so he says in verse 30, he's appointed a day, or uh, verse 31, he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. Notice what happens here. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now notice what happens in the next verse. As soon as he gets to the resurrection, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we'll hear you again about this. That is, they stop him. They don't let him go on talking about this resurrected Jesus, this person that God has sent to them. And that's intriguing. Why would they stop him there? Well, there's, there's actually a really good reason in Greek culture. And I found this fascinating. This was something, as I uh, looked at this text a few years back, I was doing some research about what Paul was doing here. It's intriguing that in Greek history, if you go back about 500 years before Paul, uh, before Paul was there preaching, what you'll find is one of the, play, one of the plays written in, in Greece, a very popular play, it was about the founding of the Areopagus. How did this place called the Areopagus get founded in, in Athens? And this play, as it describes that, says that the Areopagus was founded by Apollo. Okay, well, that's, what does that have to do with the resurrection? Interestingly enough, supposedly, according to their mythology, as soon as Apollo founds the Areopagus, he also makes another statement. He says, when a man dies and his blood is soaked into the ground, there is no resurrection. That's it. There's nothing more after that. And here's Paul going completely against everything they believe when it comes to the afterlife, and he is saying, God, the one true God, not your myriad of, of gods and goddesses, but the one true God who is above all, who doesn't need you, appointed a man who came and died for you, and God rose him from the dead, and that's how you know that he's the real one. To them, that was utter stupidity and foolishness. It did not fit into their worldview at all. It was completely outside of their way of thinking. And so they cut him off. They, some, some of them mocked. It says, and some of them said, okay, we're interested in this, we'll, we'll talk to you later. Notice what happens in verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so what we find is basically this idea. That last verse tells us that most people didn't like it, a couple did. It gives us two names of people who ended up kind of listening more to him. And basically the idea here is, 
they became followers of Paul. That is, uh, they didn't necessarily become Christians right away, but they said, Paul, we want to hear more about this, so they, they were asking him questions, and, and he was able to spend a little time with them and explain it to them. We find out from church history that this Dionysius character, actually, if you, if you go to Athens today, uh, the, one of the main thoroughfares going up to the Areopagus is named after this gentleman, who became the first pastor of the church there in Athens, from, from what we hear from church history. So certainly there is fruit. A few people seem to have believed from this. A small church was started. But the majority of people thought this was utterly foolishness and rejected it. So let's go back to the contrast between Acts 2 and Acts 17. Why the difference? If you, it, What's fascinating is maybe in your own devotional time you'd like to do this. If you were to, to list out kind of the sermon, the parts of the sermon we have, although no doubt Paul spoke for more than a minute and a half, but... But if you just took what's there and you put them side by side, what you find out is that the elements in the sermon are almost identical. Now, they're said in different language. That is, Peter uses very Jewish-type imagery, and Paul uses very Greek-type imagery, but, but the main points are, are precisely the same. But the interesting part is the starting point. Peter is able to assume a great deal because his audience already knows the whole Old Testament. They already believed that the Old Testament was written revelation given from the one and true God to them. They already believed that God was a being who had created the whole world and that he did work and govern in the affairs of mankind. He was sovereign over all. They believed all that stuff already. But, but if you get to Paul and you contrast it with Paul, they believed none of that. His audience believed none of that. They didn't have any written revelation. They didn't believe that God was sovereign over all. There were many different gods who were sovereign only over a small chunk, and that sovereignty could be taken away from them by another god or goddess. There was no sovereignty. There was not a god who was ultimately overall and outside of time and space. All their gods and goddesses were limited by time and space. It had only certain powers. And so what Paul does here is he completely changes their whole worldview system, or I should say, he replaces it with a completely different way of looking at things, ending in the resurrection, which is completely out of the realm of possibility for them, and so most of them completely reject it offhand. Okay, so how, how does that apply to you and I today? Uh, remember I said we're going to try to contrast this, look at the passage, and then apply it to you and I today as well as for, for what Kristen and I are doing in Australia. I think one thing we have to understand in this modern Western world is that many people hold fundamental assumptions that preclude them from becoming a Christian. Now, I'm speaking humanly here. Obviously, anybody who becomes a Christian is a work of God. We understand that. But from a human standpoint, many people today, especially in the United States, uh, this would also include Canada, Europe, and in our case, Australia, New Zealand, the Western world, in that Western history and literature and, and culture tradition, they hold fundamental assumptions and presuppositions, we might say, that preclude them from becoming a Christian. That is, when you start talking to a person, a typical person in our society, about sin, if you start with sin and how Christ died for our sin, it makes no sense to them. Why? Because they're told by their psychologists and by all the literature today and by all the professors at the universities that we're basically good people with good hearts and we can trust our heart, we can let faith decide, we're actually really good, we just need to have more faith in ourselves. Well, if you tell a person that believes that, that they're inherently sinful and need a savior, it makes no sense to them. Why do I need Christ to die? I'm 99% good. I'm not a Hitler after all, so I'm a pretty good person. God should accept me. That's the mentality. That's not at all what scripture says. 
And so that fundamental assumption that they have is at variance with the gospel message we're trying to tell them. So things like sin, things like faith, the world around us defines faith as belief in something that you know is not true, and usually implied in that is something that's stupid. That's their definition of faith. Oh, well, and so when you and I say to them, I have faith in Jesus, or, or I have faith in Christianity, that Christianity is true, what they think is, oh, that's a crutch. You believe in that, even though you know there's no historical basis for it. You know it's not actually true, but you're going to believe in it because it helps you emotionally or something like that. But that's not our definition of faith. From a Christian perspective, the New Testament's definition of faith is something that in which you believe based upon sound reasoning and facts. That is, in, in one case, because God has been so faithful in the Old Testament and, and in what he has done by bringing Christ into the world in the New Testament, we can trust him for the future, too. It's not just a, a wish fulfillment type thing. But you, under, you understand what the point I'm making here is that these words we use and the phrases we use and that we use and the things we do when we try to get the gospel out to our world, most people hold assumptions that preclude, preclude them from believing the story and the truth we're telling them from God's word. So how, how does this passage help us? Well, what's so interesting is Paul starts all the way back at the beginning. He starts all the way back at creation. He says, we, we have to do a whole world view shift. This is completely different than, than what oftentimes I, I think we, uh, just as church people do, I know what I've done in the past, is I'll generally start with someone, a, a relative or a friend with whom I'm trying to share the gospel. I'll start with Jesus Christ and the cross. And I'm not saying that's, that's bad in a sense. I'm just saying it, it may not be best suited for most of the people we're actually talking to nowadays. Because to start at Christ and the cross assumes that they understand that they have a sin problem. It assumes that they understand that God is Lord of the whole universe. It assumes that they understand that God is sovereign over all. It assumes so many things that unfortunately are no longer the case for most people. And so we have to ask some good questions. We have to get some good insight when we talk to some people. Some people have a pretty, uh, pretty strong what we might call biblical background so that they're going to understand that thing. You can start with Christ and the cross. But most people, you're actually going to have to start a lot farther back. Let me just uh, kind of bring this all to a conclusion. I think you'll, you'll see how all these uh, different facets tie together with this illustration. The first time I was in Australia, the second night I was there, uh, horribly sleep deprived because I don't sleep on planes. Does anyone else not sleep on planes very well? Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm there and, and I had some friends uh, in Australia. One of my friends calls me up and says, hey, uh, I was really hoping we could go out to, to dinner or coffee or something tonight, um, and, and I'm going to bring a few of my friends. One of them is not a Christian, and she has some questions about Christianity, so I want you to answer them. <laughs> okay, so why don't you answer them? Um, but I was like, okay, that sounds good. You know, this will be good. So we go out to eat, had a great time, um, and as we're out there, this individual who was uh, about 20 years old at the time, university student, starts asking me all these questions. And they're really good questions. But they're, so what is Christianity? What's this thing about Jesus? Et cetera. Things like that. Well, I started at Christ on the cross. So, okay, well, Jesus is the Son of God. That is, he's, he's God in human flesh. He's God in humanity. And, and some of those things. Uh, as simple as possible. And, and basically, he died on the cross for our sins. But then he came back from the dead, showing that he has power over that. And he can forgive sin. Something very, very basic. And as I looked at her, as I'm, these words are coming out of my mouth, these words that have so much meaning to me and are true 
you could tell she had no clue what I was talking about. You know, just a blank look, like, I don't, that all sounds like gibberish. And, and so I kind of stopped and I said, all right, clearly that didn't make any sense to you, did it? Or no. And I thought I had done a really good job of making it really simple that anyone could understand. And so I was like, all right, how do I do this? Um, okay, when I say the word Jesus, what do you think? So I just started asking her some questions. She said, you know, I, I, thought, I thought Jesus was kind of like Zeus or Apollo or, or Allah. That is, they're all mythologies and they never actually live. I was like, whoa, uh, no, that's not the Jesus I'm talking about. And so I had to go all the way back and say, no, I'm talking about a historical person who actually lived. We have historical documentation, etc." I said, when I say sin, what do you think? And, and so I just had to keep asking her these questions. Come to find out, she had no, not only did she have no foundation for the gospel, she, she had what I might call a negative foundation. She already had a structure in place that precluded what I was saying about the gospel. And so what I first had to do, in a sense, was, was kindly kind of destroy that wrong structure, that wrong worldview system, and then go all the way back to the beginning. I said, okay, let's, let's start all over. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God creates heaven and the earth. And then we had to go from there. It took a lot longer. It took two and a half hours. And she, that wasn't two and a half hours of me lecturing. That was two and a half hours of her asking questions and me answering them. And she didn't become a Christian at the end. But that shouldn't be surprising because most of the time people don't go from negative 10 to positive 20 in an hour, if you understand what I'm saying. And so there's, there's usually steps. There's seeds that are planted and they're watered and God gets the increase. And so my point what we're seeing in Australia very strongly is that most people have no concept of Christianity as a background. So the majority of people we're going to have to start a lot further back like Paul did. But the application for you and I here in the U.S. is that you have to, you have to kind of play it by ear a little bit because I think what we're finding is there's been a shift. Whereas 50, 60 years ago, many people would have had a, a Bible background kind of like Peter's audience in Acts 2. But today, it's, it's starting to shift significantly to where most of them have no Bible background or a negative Bible background. And so we have, that often means starting further back and challenging their assumptions and confronting their wrong worldview system, which is a lot harder to do, honestly, because it takes a lot more time, and it means we have to ask some really good questions. But we still find a mix in our society of people who have Bible backgrounds and people who don't. In Australia, it's almost all people who do not, which unless uh, the Lord continues to work in and through the church, America might be headed that way too with our culture. But that's where you and I, the church of, of Jesus Christ, are to, to be that kind of wall against the culture pushing back that progression. And so what we have to do is, just like Paul, we have to be reliant on the Holy Spirit ultimately but be very wise in how we confront the culture around us and the people whom we're reaching. We love them. We want them to understand it. But what we don't want them to do is just add Jesus to their other pantheon of gods like some people do. Oh, yeah, I trust in Jesus and, and Allah and Muhammad and I kind of like the Hindu thing. No, it's, it's not a smorgasbord. That's just making an idol for yourself. But we have to confront the wrong ways of thinking that we find around us with the, the Holy Spirit's power by means of the Word of God so that we can show people the truth of the gospel, which is a wonderful challenge. And God has given us all the power we need. He's given us all the resources we need. And he's given us a great example with the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. So that's our job. 
And that's your job here in the U.S. And, and us for as long as we're here in the U.S. And it's our job in Australia when God brings us there. But the job is the same for the church. We just happen to be doing it halfway around the world and slightly sleep deprived once we get off the plane. But it's the same job. And God has given it to the church. And so wherever God sends us ultimately, that's the job that we're to be doing. We have to be very wise about doing it in God's way, asking the right questions, confronting those wrong assumptions. And Paul's a great model for that. Let's go ahead and just bow in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this time. I hope that even though it was a bit of an overview of, of these many verses in this passage, I pray ultimately that the, uh, the contrast, the comparison contrast is helpful. Most importantly, I pray that the Holy Spirit has used it and uh, perhaps has challenged different individuals in here uh, at varying levels with its truth. And I pray that you would just bring that conviction of your Holy Spirit to fruition, and that you would show us how we can be careful with the, the people to whom we speak about the gospel, that we ask the right questions, that we're wise, as, as Christ said, wise as serpents, but harmless as doves, that we're exceedingly wise, and that only comes from the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would help all of us here, help Chris and I in Watertown, and wherever you end up leading us in the future, first to England, then to Australia, help the people here, wherever you end up leading them, that they would be able to share your message with the world around them, understanding that people from different backgrounds have different questions that sometimes first need to be answered or objections that need to be answered before they will understand the gospel truly. And we ask all these things in the name of Christ our Savior, whom we have trusted. Amen.